The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. This week and every week we do a Q&A show, barring some type of strange emergency situation. But uh, I want to thank everybody for listening, for tuning in, as if this was a radio station. It's clearly not, but we're certainly of the age to remember such a thing, both Jim and I and most of our listeners, so... Uh, thanks for tuning in in this modern age of podcasts. So Jim's got a big pile of questions. He's ruffling through or rustling through or whatever word we want to use uh, to, to find us some, some good ones for today's show. Um, if you do want to send in your own questions for consideration on the show, just want to right off the top here, remind people how to do that. Best way to do it is to send an email directly to Jim. Jim at jimhelps.com is the email address. In the subject line, indicate it's a question for the podcast. And uh, he'll uh, add it to his bag and hopefully pluck yours out on some future show. We do usually try to do a new question of the week, meaning uh, a lot of our questions we're pulling out of a bag from months ago. Uh, that we've received, but uh, we like to give a, a chance to one lucky individual to get their question answered uh, very quickly, same week we get it. So uh, there's always a chance the cheers won't go into that that uh, older pile and you'll uh, get addressed immediately. Um, can't address all of them, but we'll do our best to get through as many as possible. So, Jim, uh, were you successful in uh, digging through the pile and finding us some good questions for today? I do. We've got questions, as we always do. We have more mm-hmm. questions that we do have time to get to. So some people will get their questions answered. Other people won't. Um, but, again, I want to make reference. We are recording this a week in advance. Today is February 2nd as we record this. But this isn't probably going to come out, I think, to the 10th. Right, Chris? Correct. The show releases on the 10th. Yeah, because Chris will be gone uh, on a little mini vacation uh, next week. So we're recording two shows ahead of time. Reason I mention it again, if something happens between February 2nd and February 10th, 
And then you're listening to this on the 10th and you're saying, my goodness, Jim and Chris never mentioned this. Now you know why. We're recording it a little over a week in advance. All righty. Let's jump into questions. That's what this whole show is. I don't really have any any banter type things. Oh, except to say, by the time you listen to this, yours truly will have landed in Florida. I'm the 8th of February. I'm supposed to be in Venice, Florida, beginning the 8th of February. Right now, Chris, the long-term uh, weather forecast for Denver uh, shows next week uh, to be dry, which is no surprise, this whole Fall and winter has been very, very dry and warm, mm-hmm. except for three days when it was really cold and everybody started crying. Uh, that didn't last very long. Then it went right back into the 60s. But we might get a little bit of rain uh, tomorrow. Other than that, it looks like I should be able to fly out. Now I just have to look at the weather in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina on next Friday, excuse me, Thursday the 8th, because that's where my connecting flight is. So hopefully there's no ice storm. They would be mostly ice that I think could delay Charlotte, North Carolina this time of year. So I'll have to uh, check and hopefully get out and get to Venice. If I'm there and anybody is in the Venice area, like to get together for a, a cup of coffee, a beer, a lunch, that's fine. Uh, cannot be dinner. Mom always goes to dinner. Mom and I will uh, be spending every night I'm there going out for dinner for the two or so weeks that I'm there. But uh, my days might be available to meet with podcast listeners who are in the Venice, Florida area. Um, I think that's about it. Charlotte, North Carolina on the 8th is expected to be 61 degrees, partly sunny and nice. I think you're good to go. I think I'm good to go. And I have a two-hour layover. I always book at least two hours. So in case there is a delay in Denver, um, I don't have to start freaking until I'm about an hour and a half into my delay. (laughs) I don't think there'll be a... Much for delays, because weather looks pretty good next week. Well, there can still always be delays for stupid computer glitch or who knows what. That's true. uh, That causes these uh, delays at the airports. So, anyways, hopefully everything will go well, and yours truly will get his hiney out of Dodge and down to Venice for a couple of weeks to see mom and enjoy some. Actually, their weather in Venice is very similar to what we've been having this whole week in the 60s. But uh, it should still be fun to to get out of town for a couple of weeks. But if you are in the Venice, Florida area, reach out, send me an email. Maybe we can get together. All right. With all that said, let's jump into some questions. We will do a Social Security question first, as we normally do, Chris, Okay. and uh, go from there. All right. This guy didn't give the answer to his hint. I think I know it, so I didn't Google it. But after you guess, I'll tell you what I think my guess is. And I always tell you not to Google, but you might need to Google this. But if I'm wrong, I would be shocked. Okay. Okay. He says, hello, Jim and Chris. I absolutely love your show and have learned so much from you both. I also enjoy the banter and the rabbit holes. Well, this is good. This should be an easy question for Chris. I come from the state that David Letterman, and John Cougar Mellencamp are from. Oh, I think I know that one. You think you know that one? I think Indiana. And it's not because yeah, of David Letterman. Oh, I think John Cougar Mellencamp was from Indiana, right? Uh, that I don't know. I think it's Indiana because David Letterman, and I used to watch David Letterman all the time, and he would talk about being from Indiana. So uh, I, I'm less sure about John Mellencamp, but 
I'm pretty darn you know, sure. I, I know for sure John Cougar Mellencamp from Indiana. Oh, well, so then, I guess we don't need to no, Google this unless no, you want to so. Google where was David Letterman or where was John Cougar Mellencamp uh, born. I'll Google but, it as you're talking in the future. If it turned out to be wrong, I will certainly let everybody know. Chime in. Okay. I, I think we've got it covered this time. I think we nailed it. All right. Well, thanks, listener. It always helps, listeners, if you're going to give Chris a hint that you want me to ask him, help me by giving me the answer so I don't have to try to guess myself. All right. My circumstances for collecting Social Security are, and then she lists uh, five or six bullet points, Chris. My husband is 67 and has been collecting since he was 62. I'm 56 and plan to retire at 57. And this came to us last year uh, in November. So she may have already turned 57. We don't know. On the My Social Security website, it says at my full retirement age, I will collect $3,545 a month, assuming I work up. Until that time. When I remove my future earnings on the website, it says I will earn just $3,147 at my full retirement age. Okay. Okay. I was wondering if I could collect anything off my husband's account from 62 to 67 or maybe even 70, if I delay mine and start to collect then. Uh, Since my husband started his benefit early, what percent of my benefit will he collect when I turn on my benefits? And finally, and if you need me to repeat all these, let me know. uh And finally, if I should pass first, will my husband be able to collect survivor benefits off of my record immediately Or would he have to wait until I would have been eligible to start claiming? Hmm. Remember, she's only 56, Chris. Okay. Thank you for taking the time to answer. Georgette, we will call her. Okay. So we kind of have a three-in-one here. So um, I'll just tackle them in order. The first question, um, she was wondering if she could collect off her husband's record uh, from 62 to when she claims. And the answer, what what's implied in that is, can she collect something on his record alone, waiting for hers, still delaying hers, so she'll get either the, the uh, 3147 uh, at her full retirement age, which is 67, or 24% more than that by waiting to 70 and the answer is no, you cannot do that due to a rule called deeming. When you claim your retirement benefit, you are deemed to be claiming any and all benefits for which you are eligible. And when you claim a spousal benefit, same rule applies. And so you can't go in and restrict your benefit application to just the spousal benefit, which is kind of what she's implying here with the question. Be nice. You could, you know, if you could do that, and there were limited options for doing something like that previously, but those options are not available anymore to her. There are a few people grandfathered in a little bit, but that window has almost closed at this point. 
Um, so everyone should be just thinking of the general rule now is you are always deemed now to be claiming any and all benefits uh, for which you are eligible. So um, no, you can't do that because of deeming. The second question, as I was kind of frantically writing down numbers um, as, as Jim went through, um, she was asking what percentage of her benefit might her husband get? What spousal benefit might he be available or might be available to him once she claims? So remind, you know, remember everyone, to open up a spousal benefit for someone else, you have to claim your own benefit. So this isn't going to be available to him until she claims. So assuming at that point she does claim, essentially what they're going to do is they're going to first look at half of her full retirement age benefit, which she, as Jim is rattling it off, since she's retiring next year and not working all the way to her turning 67, uh, the estimate right now is 3147. So 3147 divided by two is the maximum spousal benefit for which he would be eligible. That amount is like 1574, so cut in half. Now, what that's made up of when they actually pay him will be his own benefits plus a spousal offset. If there's, you know, if his benefit is less than half of hers, a spousal offset to get him up to the 1574. But when we talk about those components, he has already claimed his own component early, which, um, she mentioned he was claiming and receiving 1086 right now. So I had to do a little reverse engineering here. And based on his full retirement age and the fact that he claimed at 62 and was collecting this 1086 per month, that kind of implies that his PIA or full retirement age benefit was somewhere around 1429 or so. These are rough because I don't have exact months and, and, and a few other details, but this is close enough to have this discussion. So let's assume that his PIA is about 1429. Well, I mentioned before his uh, spousal benefit potential was as high as 1573. So if we take the difference there, that's the spousal offset, about 145 bucks. And what that means is if he were to have waited till his full retirement age to claim his benefit, he would get his plus $145 when she claimed. But his is permanently reduced to this current value of 1086, which of course can grow with cost of living adjustments, but we're, we're talking in today's terms with all these numbers. So his benefit is permanently reduced. The spousal offset of 145 bucks will kick in once she claims. So his benefit, once she claims, is going to be the 1086 plus the $145 spousal offset, getting him up to about 1230 per month. He will never make it up to that 1500 and something because he claimed his own benefit early. That's the permanent damage he has done to the spousal benefit. So that's essentially, I, you know, she asked, I think, what percentage of her benefit um Whatever that is, I can actually tell you here. So 1086 is what he's collecting now, plus he'd get the $145 or 1231 as a percentage of her benefit, 1231 out of 3147. And I'm talking out loud as I'm typing on my calculator, 39.1%. Uh, that's, again, I've made some assumptions to get to these numbers, but that should be right in the ballpark. And reason why he's never going to get 50 is because he claimed his early. That's that's the way the math works on this one. 
Now, the last question was, if she were to pass away first, she having the larger Social Security benefit, when a, there's a married couple and one passes away, um, the survivor continues to receive the larger of the two benefits that were available. But that can be affected by your age when you claim that survivor benefit. I've got a little good news uh, for her. I I think I had some bad news in those last two answers, but the uh, good news is the survivor benefit will be unreduced, uh, meaning he will be able to collect 100% of her benefit, either her full retirement age benefit or if she makes it past full retirement age before passing and earns delayed retirement credits, uh, get that higher benefit as well. Now, she'd have to live past full retirement age to start earning those delayed retirement credits. But even if she were to pass away young at like 57 or 58, he would actually be immediately eligible for the 3147, which I need to, you know, as I say that out loud, I need to kind of clarify the way I usually describe the survivor benefit. So those of you who have listened to the show for a long period of time know I kind of simplistically describe the survivor benefit that you might be eligible for as the survivor will collect whatever you were collecting or whatever you could have been collecting had you claimed the day before you died. That's a simplistic way of describing it because it really only applies to those who have made it to full retirement age or higher. So my in making that statement, it's kind of applying to people dying after their full retirement age. If in this case, because of the age difference, she's so much younger and dies before reaching full retirement age, there's no damage that's been done to the survivor benefit because she hasn't claimed it. If she were to claim it at 62, 63, 64, then yes, she might permanently damage the survivor benefit that he would receive. But when she passes, they don't look at her age and make any kind of an adjustment if she hasn't claimed yet. They look at her PIA, which is 3145 uh, or 47 is what she shared. If she retires pretty much immediately here this this year, uh, doesn't work anymore. That's the estimate they were giving her. If she had just lives another couple years still before she could have ever claimed and passes away, He's well past his full retirement age, which is the metric they're going to look at. That's the variable that matters once he goes to claim a survivor. As long as he's not claiming the survivor earlier than his own full retirement age for survivor benefits, which for him is going to be, you know, he's already 67, he's already met it, um, then he uh, can step into the survivor benefit immediately without any reduction, even though she might have only been like 60 or something when she passed away and you know this example of kind of a really early death so my my i guess i'm adding a disclaimer to my normal description of how survivor benefits work it's that if you pass away younger than your full retirement age um the spouse the surviving spouse actually still has potential to receive 100% of your full retirement age benefit um it isn't assuming they don't look at it and say, well, let's assume she claimed at 62 when she died and and we're going to now penalize him uh, because she could have claimed even though she didn't. That's not how they look at it. Um, So there's a little nuance to the rule there, which doesn't apply to many people. We're not usually talking about many people where the higher earning spouse who's going to be delivering the survivor benefit 
uh, passes before full retirement age. Luckily, statistically, that doesn't happen very frequently. So that's not something, that's not a disclaimer I've had to kind of, or a nuance I've had to expand on, but it certainly applies in this particular case. So I did want to mention that. Um, I think right. that covers very her questions. Answer. Yeah, I think, that, I think you covered it all. I think that covers all of her questions. Yeah. Well, thank you, listener. That was a very good question. Hopefully mm-hmm. people found that interesting. Now we're going to get into, as we always do, Irma, income-related monthly adjustment amount, or essentially a surtax on Medicare. Now this one, and I very rarely do this, but we let people know when I do do it. So it's going to kind of nullify uh, his question. I'll still ask the question of the state he's in, but Chris already knows the answer. So I'll uh, give our listeners a chance to, to guess it. The reason Chris knows the answer is this Irma question references an answer Chris gave previously on a particular podcast. And I wanted to give Chris the chance to go back, listen to his answer and read the question as he addresses this listener's question. And I didn't want to do that on the fly. So uh, this is one of the few times, Chris, we actually got the question ahead of time. I did. And I you went, did. I went and pulled right. the old question. It's a question back from last October in 2023. Yep. So the, his state hint, for those of you playing along at home, eight United States presidents were born in his state. And if you can't guess it with just knowing that, that this state They were born in this state. I'll give you the names of the actual presidents themselves, according to our listener. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe, William Harrison, John Tyler, Zachary Taylor, and the newest of them all, which is still over 100 years old, Woodrow Wilson. According to this listener, all of these eight presidents were born in this particular state. And Chris, I know you know the answer to this. I was shocked in the sense no president has come from this state in over 100 years. And it's a very, the state itself is is, uh, very much impacted by Washington, D.C. and federal politics. Um. Do you want to give them the answer since you actually have it? I have it. I think I would have gotten this one right when you read through all of them. Uh, you think cause, so? Because yeah. back in that day, this was kind of the bastion of political births, if you will. <laughs> True. If and, you look at all the names, yeah, they yeah, are yeah, so. founding fathers and for the next 100, 120 years. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, that was actually kind of a good giveaway. Yeah. Uh, so why don't you just give everybody the so, answer? Yeah. So it's Virginia. And I, I would like to think I would have gotten that one right without seeing it. But since he since he sent me this email to uh, reference back to what this person was talking about, I did see it. So Perfect. All right. Question. Regarding the Irma discussion on your Q&A podcast number 2340. And you said that's October, Chris? It's back early October, yeah. Early October. I think you both glossed over. Now, I didn't gloss over anything because Chris answers the Irma questions. I think you both glossed over a critical aspect for the listener that is considering a $400,000 real estate capital gain during the year 2024. 
Chris correctly pointed out that he could file another SSA Form 44 if his income for 2024 was going to be lower than 2022, the year this gentleman retired. But if he does sell the property in 2024, I believe he should not, and he capitalized uh, not and bolded it. So I believe he should not file an SSA 44. And for those of you who may be listening to this and wondering what SSA 44 is, and you don't know, you could Google it. But I jokingly refer to it as the get out of jail free card, even though it doesn't really get you out of jail and nothing's for free. But it's a form that you can uh, file with the uh, IRS or Social Security office and ask them to not count income in a given year towards the IRMA surtax, uh, surtax calculation because there was one of a handful of anomalies that happened. Chris will go through maybe in his answer, I don't know, what these anomalies, for lack of a better word, are that will allow you to have income that would theoretically force you to have to pay IRMA premiums, uh, surcharges rather, but because you have one of the pre-accepted get-out-of-jail-free reasons, then you won't have to pay it. Now, I probably didn't explain that perfectly to your liking, Chris, but I try to keep things simple. You can add clarity wherever. So let me get back to his question. I believe he should not file an SSA 44 because if he did, he would have to include the anticipated sale capital gains as part of his estimated income on the 2024 SSA 44 form. That would drive his IRMA up into the third or maybe even fourth surcharge tier, not only for 2024, but again in 2026. But if he didn't file SSA 44 in 2024, he would only incur the first IRMA surcharge tier that he was able to achieve way back in 2022. Of course, he and his wife, if married, would be subject to the third or fourth IRMA tier in 2026. The key point here is although you are eligible to file SSA 44 if you had a qualifying event, it may not make sense if your income for the current year will be higher than two years ago due to the sale of an asset, such as in this gentleman's case, and or Roth conversions. Best regard. And keep up the great work and continued good health. Gives his real name, but we'll call him George. So very complicated to follow everything he's saying. This is what I hate about Irma, Chris, because you're looking at now, but you have to think back two years ago and project what might happen next year. And it gets very, very, very confusing. Yeah. This was an email when I read it. I was like, I didn't know that. He makes some good points. What says you? Yeah, I think on this one, the good news is since you sent this to me, it allowed me to kind of formulate thoughts on how to 
uh, more most clearly describe uh, to people and not so much. And I think I can do it with not so much focusing on every little detail in his email, but rather point out a couple of things to, for people to think about as they're deciding this. So I went back now, I didn't listen to our answer. What I did is I went back and I found the original question, which, you know, is what reminded me what, what we were talking about here. And in this particular case, that original person had retired in 2022 had filed SSA 44 for relief in 2022. They were over Medicare age when they retired. So they transitioned immediately to Medicare in the last few months of the year. And uh, because of retiring partway through the year, their income in 22 was less than it was in 2020, which is the justification. Um, And so they'd already filed one, and then they filed another one, actually, to give them some release in 23. But then they were contemplating this uh, sale of a, a real estate. It was an investment real estate property in 2024, and were they were asking about SSA 44 for that. So um, let's first remind everybody what the criteria is for uh, filing SSA 44 and having it uh, approved, if you will, and what does it actually grant you. So SSA 44 uh, is a two-pronged test, essentially. The um, normal procedure for establishing your IRMA, income-related monthly adjustment amount, for Medicare is for them to look at your tax return for two tax years prior to the year they're applying your Medicare premium surcharges. So for 2024, for instance, your Medicare premiums, if you're on Medicare, are going to be based on your modified adjusted gross income for the tax year 2022 by default. So without any adjustments, requests for changes, anything, that's the standard forever. Every year they establish your Medicare premiums each and every year throughout the rest of your life after you reach 65 years old, they're going to look at two tax years prior to determine it. So your modified adjusted gross income will have a delayed effect on your Uh, Medicare surcharges. So what does the SSA 44 do? It allows you to say, I had a life-changing event. That's the first prong of the two-pronged test for an SSA 44 request. I had a life-changing event. And the life-changing events, just to run through them really quickly, are marriage, divorce, death of your spouse, a work stoppage or reduction, loss of income-producing property, loss of pension income, or an employer settlement payment. And I'm reading those directly off the SSA 44 form. You have to have had one of those life-changing events. If you haven't, stop right there. Can't file an SSA 44. Let's assume you had one of these life-changing events. Not only do you have to have a life-changing event, but that life-changing event had to lead, then, be followed by a reduction in income. And that reduction in income is the second part of the test. And if that's true, they will then grant you uh, relief by instead of using your modified adjustment, adjusted gross income from two years ago, they will use your modified adjusted gross income from your current year. And the thought process is after you retire, you have a, this is the most common and it falls into this work reduction or work stoppage category on the SSA 44, after you were to retire, um, your income probably drops a lot. So Congress said, or 
that's and I and I'm assuming they're the ones who brought in this exception, but um, uh, the rules state or admitted that it was unfair to be charging people Medicare premiums that are so high based on earnings while they were working when they're no longer working anymore. So that's the justification for a retirement life-changing event for you to appeal and say, please use my now, my retirement income, which is likely much, much lower than when you were working just two years prior. And so that's the you know general status. That's the general thing going on here when someone files an SSA 44. So in this, the original question um, he had filed, his income was much lower. His 2022 modified adjusted gross income put him naturally in the first tier of IRMA is all. So just a little bit of penalty if we look at it. And it's his 2022 modified adjusted gross income that was used for his 2022 because he appealed it. Normally his 2022 IRMA would be based on his 2020 modified adjusted gross income, but uh, they used his 2022. And his 2022 not only applied to 2022, but also applies naturally to 2024. So without him doing anything, if he doesn't uh, sell this investment property, spiking his modified adjusted gross income, the listener who just wrote this recent email is exactly right. He wouldn't want to ask them for um, relief because he's already got relief, right? He's now passed the transition period and his 20, he already admitted the original emailer from back in the October question had admitted his 2022 um, income just left him in the first bracket. So there was really nothing to appeal or point out to the Social Security Administration for 2024 unless he sells this property. And this is where things get messy because if he were to, uh, and this is where I agree uh, with the point of the most recent emailer that sent in this question that prompted our response today, he wouldn't want to ask for SSA 44 relief saying, please use my 2024 modified adjusted gross income because he's already got low impact to his IRMA. Because if he did that and they granted it to him, if he admitted that he was selling the property and told him his estimated adjusted gross income has this huge capital gain in it, they wouldn't grant him relief anyway because they'd point out, why would you want us to do this? Don't do this because your income isn't lower than we're already projecting from your 2022. So this it would fail the two-pronged test. But let's say he hadn't decided to do it and he filed it for some reason. If he filed it, and they based it and they said, okay, fine, we'll base it on 2022 uh, and that move forward. And then he sold that property and then they get his tax return for the year, realizing he's up in the third or fourth bracket. He's going to get retroactively hit. They're going to say, we we agreed and, and gave you, uh, quote, relief by using your 2024 modified adjusted gross income estimate. And it turns out it was much, much higher than you told us it would be. So you owe us the difference. You're going to pay us the third or fourth tier IRMA. Not only that, 2024 is going to naturally apply to 2026. So he's going to get dinged in that year as well. And this is what this the listener that emailed us today was wanting to avoid. And I wholeheartedly agree. If he's going to f- sell that property 
in 2026, I'm sorry, 2024 this year, if that's truly on, on the menu and he's going to do that this year, he sure would just want to leave, you know, let sleeping dogs lie and pay his Irma, his first tier Irma that he's naturally paying for 2024. Um, and then in 2026, bite the bullet. And there's no life-changing event that's going to get him out of that, um, most likely, unless, I mean, you can always have more than one life-changing event, um, that the sale of that property is going to lead to a spike in Maggie for one year, leading to a spike in his Irma for one year. But at least it's just in 2026. He could actually mistakenly get approval to use 2024 for 2024 Irma only to have it bite him in the butt after the fact. And that's, that's what this uh, person is, is uh, mentioning. So yes, you, you could, it, they're bringing up a point that you could end up regretting filing an SSA 44 if you subsequently then spike your income, undoing that lowering of the income and have it penalize you in two separate tax years when you would have only naturally been penalized in one. So I like their, uh, I like them kind of bringing that up. I don't think the the direction of our answer back in October didn't really go that way. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm glad he gave us a chance to kind of flesh this out in even more detail. Um, and kind of, I guess, share a little warning, make sure you, when you're filing an SSA 44, you anticipate all the repercussions uh, of doing so and uh, be aware that if your life changes, your income changes after you filed and had your SSA 44 accepted, you could do something to generate income in that year that you sought relief and it will end up punishing you twice. So I've seen that happen on a couple of occasions um, that that in hindsight, they were like, oh, we shouldn't have done that because look what happened. We we punished ourselves twice instead of just once. So it's certainly potential. Makes this complicated. That's all I have to say. It it's does. not – everybody thinks they understand Irma. You owe Social Security. And you start diving into the nuances, and both programs are incredibly complex. And it's, just, it's crazy. It's – anyways, thank you for clarifying everything and – Listeners, you may have to listen to his answer a couple of times. I know I have to to follow everything you were saying. But, um, yeah, complicated for sure. Now, IRAs and distribution rules, those are easy, right, Chris? I mean, <laughs> can't get any easier than that, right? Oh, yeah. There's no there's no complexity to that. No, no complexity at all. It's just Irma and Social Security. And if it wasn't for Irma and Social Security, your retirement would be a cakewalk. I don't think retirement plans would even exist. Okay, now I'm being facetious, folks. Yeah. This is very complex. Everything, not just ERM and Social Security, but everything, which kind of ties in to the next question, which is the new question of the week. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not an annuity question at all, even though he references annuities. It's actually a question on funding the gap in his minimum dignity floor. So I thought it would be a good question. We like the new question of the week where we kind of take one because we're still answering questions from last year. And heck, I think a couple of weeks ago, I answered a question from two years ago. So um, we can't get to all the questions, obviously. 
But uh, I like to grab a new one of the week that I thought is interesting. And this one was pretty good. All right, let's see if they give us a hint. Oh, wait. Well, it's not quite a hint. Uh, and I'm not going to try to make one up, folks. Uh, he is, we'll call him George, as we always do. Gave his real name. We'll call him George. From the once golden state of California. So I think he's saying California is no longer golden. I don't know. But we have a Californian. Is that what they call themselves? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I am 60 and my wife is 55. We will have secure income of Social Security and a small pension. But combined, they will not cover our minimum dignity floor. Let me pause there. Chris, is that unheard of? No. No, I'd say if it wasn't a small pension, it was bigger, then it's more likely they would, you know, covered it. But they may live, not that all of California is super expensive, but they live in a relatively expensive state for minimum dignity floor purposes. So, um, you know, it's certainly possible to have not enough social security and pension to cover your minimum dignity floor. Right. That's all I wanted to reference, folks. Mm -hmm. Few people have enough secure income to cover their minimum dignity floor. Now, many people may cover their minimum dignity floor. And again, if you don't know what we're talking about, if you're a new listener, go back and listen. There's no way we can bring you up to date on the concept of MDF, secure income, fund number, go-go slow-go, no-go fund spending, see-through portfolio, investment positioning. All of those are concepts and terms unique to us and our approach to retirement planning. So if you don't quite follow this, listen to prior shows and learn. But your minimum dignity floor are food, utilities, transportation, housing, and healthcare expenses. They'll last forever. They don't go away. And if you run out of money, you still have to cover minimum dignity floor expenses. So we like to cover them with lifetime stream of guaranteed income. We're not saying you, as a 50, 60-year-old person, need to run out and buy an annuity. But you need to reserve enough money to give the older you an option of deciding if they want to buy an income annuity. I've always said if there's a shortage in funding your minimum dignity floor with your Social Security and pension, the decision to buy an annuity is not yours to make. It's the older you who needs to make that decision. The younger you needs to make sure there's enough money in reserve for the older you to have. And that is this person's conundrum. So he continues. Let's see. We have estimated that our minimum dignity floor gap, and he defines that as his minimum dignity floor minus our secure income. Okay, perfectly reasonable calculation. Same thing we do. Brilliant. We have projected our gap to be $60,000 a year in today's dollars. So our plan is to purchase an annuity to help cover this shortage, probably when I'm around age 70. Could be earlier, could be later is what he's saying, but somewhere around age 70. 
lot of times we see the shortage beginning later. Anecdotally in our office, most people have a shortage around 78 to 83. But somebody having a shortage as early as age 70, it is not uncommon. It is certainly not unicorn uncommon, but it is not uncommon to see somebody with a shortage that early. So again, nothing so far standing out or flashing well, a red flag. The one thing standing out to me is the size of the gap. Oh, yeah. While I'm, well, not, I'm just assuming they don't have yeah. much Social Security. So I'm not surprised that Social Security and a small pension isn't quite covering it, especially in a fairly high-cost state. But for it to be that short tells me a couple of things I'm going to assume here. They must have a sizable mortgage payment or and or they're thinking of claiming their Social Security really early, which is maybe undermining their position. So I want to mention to people immediately before you start evaluating annuities, evaluate the cost of you know increasing your Social Security benefit by delaying, and you're going to find it's very competitive with what you would otherwise have to spend on an annuity to fill in the gap. So make sure you've looked at that alongside annuitization because for a gap that large they've got a they've got a noticeably large minimum dignity floor which the usual culprit is mortgage payments which we would tend not to recommend annuitizing which we've talked about on a recent show even so i everything you said i support but maybe not in this client's case okay. you don't i didn't get through the rest so let me just let okay. the bag out of the Oh, what did you almost, say? almost. Now, so now you agree that you said it last time. I did. Yeah. Okay. Cat out of the bag. Why I said bag out of the cat is beyond me. And I almost did it here too, but I caught myself. I am under the impression, and I think I may be right. He worked for a corporation or a government agency that was not paying into social security mm. and did not provide a meaningful pension because he calculates as i read through this folks and chris he calculates that they will need a million dollars to cover this shortage mm -hmm. he doesn't blink he's like we got the money and here's what we're going to do oh, so they might have a big divine contribution right. plan that they got instead of social security for lots Correct. of the work years that's certainly Correct. possible too but but the numbers at face value when they were going by were a little surprising is what i wanted to point out and we have several people who work with us in the state of colorado i won't name which county uh, that opted out of social security and they are in a situation where they have Fairly nice sized defined contribution plans, no lifetime stream of income, massive shortages in their minimum dignity floor. So I have a feeling that's what this gentleman's situation is. I could be totally wrong, but let me read on and you might come to the same conclusion. Okay, so he says, uh, blah, 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 where is he? Because I left as you were chatting. Uh, okay, as 60000 per year in today's dollars. Our plan is to purchase annuity around age 70 to cover this gap. My question to blah, my question relates, how am I calculating the amount of money I should be setting aside now to buy this annuity in 10 years when I turn 70? 
Remember, he's 60, folks. His wife is 55. If I didn't mention that, that's their ages. So what I did, and the simple way to calculate the amount I thought, was to use an online annuity calculator. Let me pause and add a little bit of clarity. When Chris and I do this for clients, when we do a retirement analysis, and if there is a shortage in their minimum dignity floor funding, uh, we generally do not annuitize what we call the delay period. And I'm glad to see he's not advocating that, Chris. He's not saying, hey, remember, he's uh, 60. His wife is only 55. He's not saying we're going to purchase an annuity now at 60 and 55. We're going to do it at 70. So I'm assuming for the next 10 years, he is funding his shortage because it's a defined period. In other words, an end date. I'm just assuming he's figured out, he knows what his shortages are, multiplying it by 10 and setting those dollars aside. But at 70, when his social security is turned on, and it's at its, I'm guessing here, at its highest value, and I do think he has a very small social security benefit because he most likely at some point, maybe he has enough to qualify for benefits from previous employment. But I'm guessing the majority of his work, he didn't pay anything meaningful into Social Security. Again, we could be wrong in our assumptions. We're just guessing. So at least he's not trying to buy the annuity right away. He's waiting till what little Social Security he has relative to his minimum dignity floor uh, is fully turned on. But then he's acknowledging from 70 on, there's no end date. And I'm getting older. I'm not getting younger, stronger, and healthier. My brain is slowing down. My ability to understand financial concepts is slowing down. I don't want to have to deal with all of this. I want the steady income. But more importantly, I would love to be able to fund expenses that will continue forever, whether I have money or not, with income that will continue forever, whether I have money or not. So he's trying to figure out how much money is it going to take at age 70 to buy an annuity that will cover this shortage. It doesn't mean by doing this calculation at 60, he's locking himself into buying the annuity. He just needs to figure out. He doesn't share how much money he has, but the dollar amounts he's talking indicate to me the man has a few million dollars at minimum. So he doesn't seem to to, um, be trying or, or be in a situation where he is going to force him to buy the annuity now. He just wants to give himself the flexibility in the future. But he's wondering how to calculate that. So he continues. Just wanted to give a little backstory to what he's doing. We talk about this all the time because this is the approach we take. So he found a website called immediateannuities.com. Chris and I are very familiar with this website. It's not what we use. We have access to most likely the software that behind the scenes is actually powering immediateannuities.com as well. It's called Canix. But when we use that software and we start looking at it, we can get uh, estimates from dozens and dozens and dozens of insurance companies of what they would want. Mm-hmm. 
And he's right. Fund yeah. He's right in the sort. right ballpark of what I'm seeing. As you've been talking here, I ran a quick check to see a 70 and 65 year old, which is what they are going to be when he turns 70. She'll still be 65, uh, wanting $60,000 a year for life. Uh, joint and survivor comes out about 950. Um, so his million dollar comment is right in the right ballpark. Now, I'll let you talk some more, but I want to point out that that's for a flat annuity, no inflation. Yeah. Which I get what two more sentences, but, then let's get into what you're, you're yeah, going, where you're yeah, going with no that. No problem. Okay. So he says, My simple way to calculate the amount to set aside was to go to immediateannuities.com mm-hmm. and to get a quote using our future situation. Yep. So he is correct, and so is Chris. If you're trying to do this on your own, don't get a quote for a 60 and 55-year-old who needs 60000 a year. He anticipates his shortage to be at 70, and I think he fixated on that date because that's when his Social Security, whatever he's entitled to, is fully turned on. And he's approaching what we call the post-delay MDF shortage. So he began with age 70 and his wife being 65, even though they're 60 and 55 today. Chris did it correctly as well. Okay. So he said to get a quote for our future situation, utilizing joint and 100% survivor, male age 70, female age 65. Mm -hmm. We want monthly, not annual payments. So I put $5,000 per month. It came back to tell us that if we were those ages today, we would need $912,000. His might be a little different, Chris, because monthly pays you more than annually. So if you chose annual, that might be some of the difference. Monthly, the insurance And I saw some quotes as low as that. The 950 I was relying on was the highest rated insurance company in the U.S., Yes. Good. Keep that thought in mind because I want to run that through with people. I tried to do it. I I can't remember when because we're recording shows so far in advance now uh, because of Chris being out next week. But I think in one of my rants, uh, especially with the industry, that you don't, when it's lifetime income, don't fixate on what insurance company is going to do it for the lowest cost fixate on what insurance company is going to let you sleep at night knowing they will be here for the next 20, 25, 30 plus years. Okay. The quote comes back to 912. I plan to take this 912 and invest it in a 70-30 portfolio. I'm not going to discount it. Now, he didn't put those words in. I did. Because normally what Chris and I would do, let's just say we fixated on Chris's 950 amount. We would tell a person, right now we estimate you will need 950. We would warn our clients and we would warn you and the listener to this, the writer of this email and the listener of our podcast. This is not a set it and forget it. You got to proof this number every year and add to it if things change. But we discount it down 3%, very, very reasonable discount rate and achievable rate of return. He never indicated that, Chris. 
Well, so I think he's going me, about it a different direction, but I'll, I'll let you finish. But there's two okay. ways of doing this, and I think he's just doing it the other way. Okay. In my opinion or my scenario in my head, I think he might be putting the full amount and investing it aggressively because these are dollars you won't need for 10 years. He said he will invest it in a 70-30 portfolio, which is, in my opinion, moderately aggressive. It's certainly not moderate, and it's certainly not aggressive. So I would put it as moderately aggressive. Moderate is usually 50-50-60-40 stocks to bonds, and aggressive is 80-20 or 90-10. So 70-30, in my measure, puts him clearly in the moderately aggressive allocation. And I think he's saying, hey, I'm going to put the full amount rather than discounting it. And at least for the next X number of years, because I'm still a decade away, I'm going to try to get some good growth in this. And if anything, I'll end up with more money than I need for the older me, which is a much better situation to be in. That's what I'm assuming. So he continues that he's going to Put 912000 aside and invest it in a 70-30 portfolio. My assumption is this portfolio will keep pace with the inflation on minimum dignity floor. So I would hope it is going to keep pace with that. Um, in my mind, though, he should be looking at what the shortage is in the future. We will use inflation-adjusted dollars to figure out his shortage. He's starting today with 60000 right. saying, that's my shortage. Yeah. But he's not increasing that 60000 for minimum dignity for inflation, where health care should be going up in his calculations at 5 or 6% minimum. Food should be 4 or 5, energy 4 or 5 Food, utilities, transportation, housing, and healthcare go up at higher than headline inflationary rates. He should be designing his own MDF breakdown, all you VG Vanguardians. You should have in your Excel spreadsheet your whole minimum dignity floor in broad categories. You don't have to use each individual expense, but you should be inflating healthcare at high rates and food and utilities much higher rates than general rates of inflation. And then you should just look, okay, well, in 10 years, when I'm 70, I need these inflation-adjusted dollars. I need maybe 60000 10 years from now on a minimum dignity floor shortage. I'm just making this number up. It's going to be 73. And he should be getting the quote for 73. That's how we would do it. He's doing it a little differently, folks. He's saying, hey, I'm going to use 60, which is my shortage today. Remember the 70-year-old him, he's going to need more than 60. He's going to need those dollars increased for inflation, MDF inflation, not headline. But he is assuming if I do this calculation in 912 and invest it aggressively 70-30, it will grow at a level that will give me enough money to buy a lifetime stream of income that will keep pace with the inflationary pressures on my $60,000 MDF shortage. Mm. I would encourage him, unless if you, you let me finish, then you can say if you agree with the way I would do it or not. I would encourage him to increase that $60,000 for his personal MDF inflation. 
and do the calculation again, because that's what the older hymn would need. Then you could discount it down if you'd like, like we do with a reasonable 3% or whatever rate you want to use. Put that money aside and hope to earn at least that discount rate, if not more. That way, by time the dollars grow to 70, you would have any growth above your discount rate. And if you discount it at zero, any growth at all is just gravy on top. But if you discount it down, any growth above the discount rate will also go into helping ensure that the income payments you're going to receive will have kept pace, if not exceeded, your personal MDF rate of inflation. Okay, let me just finish this last sentence, then you can chime in. Because Chris does this mostly. I've been dragged out of retirement, folks. I jokingly have been telling y'all for the last week or two. And I will for a couple of months training Jake. Jake is a very, very competent new advisor in our office, but he needed uh, some improvement on his delivery techniques of our retirement planning. And Chris and I, if we can get more people delivering plans, we hopefully will be able to uh, maybe hire or or at least uh, work with a, a few new clients. So anyways, I've been drawn out of retirement a few weeks back, and I'm starting to deliver plans again, but Chris has been the sole person delivering plans prior to Jake, so he will chat more about this, and he and his team do all the programming. I'm just doing this from memory of how I used to do it five, six, seven years ago when I was very, very involved in the planning. So he ends with, I know you and Chris have access to better annuity quoting options. And you also account for inflation on MDF differently than I am. And I just shared with you how I would have adjusted for inflation. But what do you think of my approach? And what issues would you see with my rather simplified approach? And how do you think it compares to what you guys would have done? I think I kind of explained how I feel we would have done it as a firm, but now, Chris, I'll shut up, and I know that's hard for me. And why don't you fill uh, listeners in and this listener with, are you on board with my thoughts, not on board? How would you do it? Do you think he's on track? So I think the glaring hole hasn't been pointed out here in what you shared. Um, Whether one adjusts for the age 70 MDF gap by doing it the way we do it, which is growing the MDF expenses and looking at the gap in a forecast down the road to establish, oh, you're not going to need 60, you're probably going to need 73 using Jim's numbers, Uh, then running an annuity quote based on that 73, then recognizing that between now and then you might earn something, and we assume a very, you know, in our eyes, you know, pretty conservative assumption of 3%, discounting it back. That's how we arrive at the current set aside or reserve. Another method which is completely valid is to take the quote at today's values, that 60,000 gap, and then um, get the quote and then invest that in a way where the growth between now and age 70 is going to allow you to buy not a $60,000 annuity, a $73,000 annuity, going back to his number. So there's kind of two ways to skin a cat in there and, and effectively get you to the same thing. In both approaches, though, if that's all that you do for inflation adjustment, all that you've then taken care of is the inflation between now and age 70. 
you have not tackled inflation on the minimum dignity floor from that point to mortality. That's the giant gaping hole that's at issue here that he didn't address. And, you know, going back and forth between the two methods also doesn't address it. He's got to get a quote for an annuity starting at age 70 that goes up because assuming your minimum dignity floor gap is going to stay, you know, $73,000 from that day to mortality is, I think, way too optimistic, not recognizing the realities of the growth on the minimum dignity floor. So I'll point out here just as a matter of of comparison, that same $60,000 annuity that I pulled a recent quote from the highest rated insurance company in the United States right now, and that's where I came up with 950 instead of his 912, so I was using 950, that same insurance company to um, to promise a $60,000 annual payment growing at just 3% per year, that quote goes to $1.35 million goes up $400,000, almost 50% higher in order to give you an inflating annuity payment. So yes, he's all fixated on the inflation and how do we deal with that between now and 70, but inflation isn't going to stop at 70. Inflation's probably just getting going at that point, and there's maybe another 25, 30 plus years of inflation you're going to face on your minimum dignity floor, and your approach didn't deal with that at all. So, and 3% might not even be a big enough inflation rate on your minimum dignity floor gap. You'd have to run some projections and look at it using your own assumptions as to growth in your social security and your pension income, and then growth in your minimum dignity floor expenses, whatever they might be. Now, if in that minimum dignity floor mortgage payments are in there, there's a little bit of good news. Mortgage payments are fixed. So you won't have inflation on that component, but healthcare and food and energy and some of these other things are going to have a lot of upward pressure and you need to make sure you're addressing that. That's, that's the thing I wanted to make sure to emphasize and point out. Yeah. And I'm glad you did because that was an important element that he missed and I missed in my little tirade. And this is how we look at it. So we do address this when we do it. Mm -hmm. Chris will determine what the growth rate of the shortage is and adjust it. Now, in the past, this company that he's referencing, um, and we've talked about this company in the past, so we'll name it again. Was that a New York Life quote? Was it someone else? This was New York Life. New York Life, yeah. And we're not pushing New York Life, but they are a highly rated, well-capitalized, well-funded, very old and storied company that I personally would sleep well with if they had my lifetime guaranteed annuity. But we're not saying to use them. We are saying that you shouldn't fixate on the annuity company offering the best price. You do that when you're looking for maybe a three, four, five-year multi-year guaranteed annuity, and the amount of money you're putting into the multi-year guaranteed annuity is less than your state guarantee account protection. I'm fine with that. Go with the company offering the higher interest uh, even if it meant getting a lower rated company or a private equity owned Bermuda based company, which I can't stand, but they're out there. Okay, back to conceptually, because I've read so many articles, even articles in our financial press saying, don't buy an annuity with an inflation adjustment. It's stupid. It's ridiculous. And what they're getting at is they're saying it's too expensive. 
We're not saying you are going to buy that annuity in 10 years, listener who sent this email and listeners in general. We're saying we have to come up with a reasonable amount of money that you are going to put off to the side. Our approach to retirement planning believes passionately in fully protecting with an explicit promise your minimum dignity floor. You guys know this. That's the promise you will make to the older you. In return, the older you is going to give you permission to spend on fun. You can only spend a dollar how many times, Chris? Mm, Once. Once. So if you don't put 1.4 million aside, you put 950 or 912 aside, the rest of those dollars in our approach to retirement planning, the concept of a see-through portfolio, let's just say this man has 3 million. I don't know what he has. He's not blinking at putting nearly a million dollars aside. So let's just assume he's got three. If he put a million dollars aside and he says, now I have two million left that I can spend on fun, we would hope he would first address his aging and long-term care needs, uh, a pre-funded inheritance, and a buffer reserve. Let's just say those three things combined comes to another million. Just follow conceptually what I'm getting at, not the numbers. So now he had a $3 million portfolio that he whittled down to a $1 million portfolio. And theoretically, those remaining dollars are for non-discretionary, totally frivolous, excuse me, fully discretionary, totally frivolous fund spending. But he can only spend a dollar once. But what if he then started spending to his heart's content that million? But he ended up needing it because he miscalculated the inflation adjustments later. By putting one and a half or 1.4 million off to the side, in my math work, his fund number is now 600,000, not a million. All's what he's doing as he creates the see-through portfolio concept is looking into his $3 million in my hypothetical example, and he's trying to determine how much of that can I spend on fun. I don't want to limit myself to a safe withdrawal rate. I want to give myself a budget and then go live it up, especially during my go-go years. I don't want to limit myself every year because I could suffer a stroke or Parkinson's or dementia or an auto accident at any time. I'm 60, going on 70, going on 80. I know how this ends. You all know our concepts. So what I'm getting at here, those of you or the the articles you might read of, oh, you shouldn't buy an inflation-adjusted annuity. Chris and I probably wouldn't buy an inflation-adjusted annuity when the time comes. We would encourage our clients to do a laddering effect with the annuities. But we're trying to figure out today, remember, he's 60 and retired, folks. His wife is 55. They're trying to figure out how much they can spend on fun. If they underestimate the reserve, they may spend a dollar on fun that they needed later for this reserve. By building in this inflation adjustment and getting a quote for a COLA-adjusted annuity, stated, not CPI-adjusted, but stated 4, 5, 6% rate, whatever it is, increase, 
they're pulling more dollars out. They're just making their fun number a little bit more realistic. The other thing as we wrap up this question, all of you keep in mind as you're figuring this out, this is not a set it and forget it, a one and done. Retirement planning, period, isn't. But this step truly isn't. And this needs to be looked at every single year. You have to run these quotes every year and see, are things changing? Now, don't panic. If your portfolio has dropped, that's the point. If you don't, this guy doesn't need this money for 10 more years. And if he's going to put it in a 70-30, he has to recognize when he looks at it the following year, he might be down already 10, 20, 30% in a 70-30 portfolio. Hopefully he doesn't freak out. But he can then make a decision. Hey, whoa, this is down. I don't feel too good about that. I have a $600,000 fund number. Um, I'm going to pull $75,000 out of that fund number. I'm going to pull it and I'm going to push it up here. It's just an accounting gimmick, folks. It's emotional accounting. I'm going to move this up here. And I'm going to put it there. It's no longer being spent on fun. I'm putting it for my MDF. As the market begins to recover and I start to get on a growth trajectory or I'm averaging my discount rate, let's assume he used three, I'm willing to pull some of the dollars back down into my fund. All's what he's doing is making sure as he's looking at his fund budget that the MDF takes precedence. We leave it to our clients to decide if they want to pull up. Generally speaking, people who are still 10, 12, 13 years from needing their long-term minimum dignity floor reserve, they're not panicking. They're not pulling anything out of fun. But I assume as late, sooner or later, I assume we will find someone who will, hey, no, I'm going to push more money into that. So these numbers need to be looked at on a regular basis. Anything else you want to add? No, I think that's... Uh, I think we beat that horse to death. Probably, yeah. Okay. Do we have time for one more? Because this woman's been waiting a long time for her answer. We can do one more short one. Excellent. Well, it's going to be up to you to keep this short. Okay, I will. <laughs> okay, I'm sure you will. Um, but I'm not quite sure she has her terms correct let me kind of get through what she's asking, uh, and then we can go from there. Okay. Um, she's from California. We'll skip the hint. Okay. I'm retiring from my job of 25 years in February of 2024. That's why I wanted to get to this. She asked, I, I just found the email today. She asked, can you answer this before February? So, we, we missed it. It is already February, but we're not too far into February. I discovered your podcast by chance in early fall of 21 and have been a regular loyal listener. I am retiring from my job of 25 years in February of 2024, but not necessarily from the workforce. I'm 58 and will be 58 when I leave my job in February. I have in a 403B account, one and a half million. In a defined contribution account, and I'm guessing, Chris, it's a 457 plan. In a defined contribution account, $420,000. 
and I have a defined benefit plan with a $750 a month pension when I'm 65. Mm-hmm. So far, so good. A defined contribution plan, folks, usually it's got to be a 457. If she has a 403B, she probably works no, for a university. Probably a 401A hospital. at a university. True, it could be a 401A as well. But she, the defined contribution plan is a tax-deferred plan. It's most likely a 457 or 401A, as Chris said. In 2022, I opened a non-deductible after-tax traditional IRA with the intention of doing backdoor Roths. There is $500 in this IRA, and I succeeded in getting $2,000 into my Roth. I have over $190,000 of annual income, and since I'm single, I cannot contribute to a Roth. So far, so good, Chris? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Now it gets a little confusing. So I want you to set the record straight for her. When I retire in February, I will leave my 403B where it is. Mm-hmm. My current employer allows this. I will move my defined contribution account. If I move it, will it still be considered tax deferred? I assume she means move it to an IRA. So you want to answer her first question, Chris? Let's just say it is a 457. Okay. It doesn't matter if it's a 457 right. or 401. She okay. moves 420000 from her 457 to an IRA. Still tax deferred? Yes. Yep. Perfect. Just, just a simple rollover. Yep. Okay. And you listeners and Chris, you should understand the concept of the backdoor Roth. She did not qualify to put money into a Roth. So she opened an IRA and would fund it with after-tax dollars. Then she would turn around and convert it into a Roth. That's why we call it backdoor. That's perfectly legal. It's been not necessarily overtly blessed by the IRS and Congress, but implicitly implied. I don't know if that's a double uh, negative or not, but it's legit. It's allowed. Don't worry about it. So she's been contributing after-tax dollars and converting them to a Roth. So she continues. If I do move my 457, excuse me, my defined contribution plan, I'm calling it a 457. Do you recommend I close my non-deductible traditional IRA with $500 in it? And then open a new traditional IRA to avoid the pro rata rule. I want to keep things easy and not complicated. Thank you in advance for answering my question before February. But then she shares with us, I'm moving the $420,000 defined contribution plan so I can do $50,000 a year conversions in 2024 and 2025. I'm thinking, folks, to take advantage of the Tax Cuts and Job Act. What I'm confused with, Chris, is this pro rata and the moving of what she's thinking. And I, I don't quite understand if she moves 
her money in the defined contribution plan to an IRA. She now has $420,000 of pre-tax dollars. It's going to kill her ability to do the back door from that point on. Closing your current IRA with 500 bucks in it, and I'm going to assume $500 of pre-tax, excuse me, post-tax dollars that are sitting in there waiting to be converted. I'm just guessing. Getting rid of that, closing that, maybe putting it in a Roth or just distributing it, then moving your defined contribution plan to a new IRA, and then trying to do the back door again, the pro rata is there. As soon as you move that defined contributions, 420000 into an IRA, as soon as you do that, your ability to do the back door has been killed because of the pro rata rule, which Chris will describe. I think you should just leave the four, whether it's a 457 or 401A, I don't know. Keep the defined contribution plan there and just convert a stated amount every year directly from it. You no longer have to do a, a conduit IRA, which is what they called it in the past. You can convert directly from employer plans into a Roth IRA. I would just keep it there or convert from your 403B. You can take the 50000 a year from your defined contribution plan or from your 403B and do the conversion, direct conversion into a Roth, keeping no IRA at all to allow you to keep doing the back door. What says you as you wrap this up? I think you're fixating on continuing to the back door, but I'm not sure why, because she's retiring. So she's not going to want to continue doing the back door. Well, okay, I might have to. missed this part. She's so, not well, let me leaving finish. the workforce. Let me, let me finish. Oh, she's not leaving the workforce? No, it says, I will be retiring from my job at 25 years. Maybe I missed this part to be pithy, but not retiring from the workforce. Ah, Okay. So, yes, then, if she's going to have further income, which could be used for contributions to a retirement plan, then she will kind of muddy the waters with her plan to roll that out. And I'm not sure why, because you're absolutely right. She could do conversions directly from the 457 without moving it out into, into a conduit IRA. What I'm a little confused about is why the heck is she leaving that $500 sitting in there if it's after-tax money? It should have been converted to the Roth already, um, so it's kind of getting in the way, uh, in a way. But if it, for whatever reason, she doesn't get that out of there, and she does roll this out, what I would say is don't even worry about tracking that anymore, because she's going to have a lifetime of burden of keeping track of that little $500 pro rata in this account when the penalty, you know, the, the cost of ignoring it and just you know, dealing with it as if it's not after tax is that you end up paying tax on that $500 twice. But it's such a small amount, it's probably better to do that than to to track through 8606 every single year for the rest of your life, that little tiny pro rata piece that's going to be in there. So um, if she were to get that out of there and have, you know, have it clean out of there by the end of the year and then next year, roll the force 57 into an IRA, then she'd have no problem with this moving forward, assuming she didn't want to do the back door anymore. But you're absolutely right. If she's not leaving the workforce and is going to have income and wants to do the back door, you can't 
you can't take that money out and put it in an IRA, you'll be forever battling the pro rata rule. Um, but she might be able to accomplish her Roth goals simply through conversions and not worry about doing backdoor anymore. And so there's a couple of options there. She didn't share with us how much she's going to work and how much she might save from her ongoing participation in the workforce. We're just guessing there. I didn't either. I wasn't listening close enough or you didn't mention that she was going to. She did. Working. She just said it would be pot time. Yeah. I didn't read that paragraph, but yeah. she'll be uh, and staying in the workforce, mm-hmm. working pot time somewhere else. Yeah. And if that's the case, you know, again, maybe sometimes I always ask people, what are you trying to get to? Because sometimes they're trying to go about it, the you know, too complicated. If it's just I want to fill up my Roth, she's got a whole big bag of money there that needs to be converted to Roth. And uh, that might accomplish her goals, depending on what it is without having to worry about keeping the back door open. Um, but if she wants to, she cannot roll that 457 out to a traditional IRA um, or she's going to be battling, you know, the pro rata issue. I agree. So, so anyways, hopefully this helped this listener. It, it is the beginning of February and you haven't started to do anything yet and move money around. But um, I, if you're still going to try to do the back door, I would leave both employee retirement accounts where they are, but confirm with them that they will allow partial withdrawals. They don't have to. And that might be one of the reasons why she's she's not doing it. I don't Mm -hmm. know. But they might say to her, no, we're not going to allow partial withdrawals. Or sometimes they limit you to one. I've seen one a quarter, one a year as a partial withdrawal. I remember the old TSP. You had one ever for the rest of your life. And then you had to do a full withdrawal. So TSP doesn't do that anymore. But um, the employer could have some some rules on that. So that's why you would just want to find out with them. And maybe the 403B would allow a partial withdrawal and the other account would not. I don't know. So talk to HR, talk to the providers, see which ones will allow you to do that. And they may even allow you to convert it with an IRA right with the, the current custodian of your plan assets if you like them. Uh, she did indicate she's going to leave her $1.5 million 403B there, uh, and she indicated in there uh, because the current employer allows it and she's okay with the investments. So anyways, I would look into it. I yeah. think you can accomplish what you're doing. Uh, just be a little um, cautious on moving it to an IRA just to convert $50,024 and 50025 That's only $100,000. Then you're going to be leaving another 150 sitting in an IRA. That's going to screw you up with the pro rata rule. At minimum, just move the hundred all hundred thousand if you had to. And then in two years, when that IRA is gone, you can keep doing the pro rata back door as long as you keep part time employment. But you move all 420, and you're only talking about converting 50,000 a year for two years. You're going to be stuck to pro rata for ever and really limiting the effectiveness of the backdoor. And those of you out there thinking, well, why doesn't she just convert the 500 and then she can roll it out or take it out even, take it as a distribution? What you always have to remember, the pro rata rule is going to be calculated based on the end of year balance in that IRA. And so if she, for instance, here in February, takes that $500 out, whether it's a distribution or a Roth conversion, at the end of the year, 
And so between February and the end of the year, she then's like, well, I have a zero IRA. Let me, now I can roll that out and it'll be clean. All I'll have is deferred dollars in my IRA. Uh, and at least, you know, the 500 will have escaped. It won't have, <laughs> it's, it's going to be sucked in there. So that, but that's the small potatoes part of this, right? It's, it's not really about, you know, getting too wound up over the pro rata on $500. What's the bigger issue is if do you want to keep doing the back door or not and what she's proposing will undermine that effort if that's truly part of her goal so okay perfect yeah thanks everybody for listening and uh yeah we welcome your future questions um jim you have a, a swell trip out to florida well next time we talk next time we record you'll be from florida so you can give us the update on how you're enjoying the weather down there yes that's right i will be in florida i forgot i will be in florida when we record next because we pre-recorded next week's shows already folks so uh, i will chat with you from florida yep sounds good everyone have a great week we'll be back with you next week with a brand new show you have listened to jim on the radio read his quotes in the media and enjoyed his banter on itunes But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saunier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jimhelps.com or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 